Thank you, Ken. It's all about relationship, isn't it? Kids leaving for nursery and Sunday school. Yeah. As they're saying, it's all about relationship. And that's what that psalm is about. That's what the psalmist is, is, is declaring the goodness of God as he's in relationship with him. And that's why we're here this morning, because of relationship. And we've started out worshiping the Lord, because that is the only way to approach him properly as his people, part of his creation. We look around us and we see the wonder of all that he's given to us, and we're, we're, we're thankful, we're thankful. But let's pray as we look forward to him speaking to us as well through his word. Father, you're a good God a great God, and you've blessed us in so many ways. We see that in our own lives. We see that in our lives, our life as a church family. Um, thankful for the day yesterday, uh, just the glory, your glory being seen through the lives of, of regular people. And we just ask that as we come here today, that you would speak to our hearts, that we know you're willing to do that just that we would be ready instruments to hear you. Forgive us for where we failed you, Lord. Help us to come before you with um, pure hearts, clean hands because of our, our confession. We've brought our sins before you. We've asked for forgiveness. And we want, to, we want to hear you, and we want to walk with you. We want to live for you. And we know that each time we open this book, you have a very particular message for us as a church family, a particular message for us as individuals. And so we just ask, Lord, that you would speak now. Help us to hear. Help us to apply and obey this message you have for us. We pray in your Son. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. How do we make sure we're blessed? That seems to be the question that's on everybody's mind all the time. And you go, really? Everybody's mind? Everybody's thinking about it? They may not use the word blessed, but everybody's looking for happiness, aren't they? Everybody wants to have things work out well for them. Is there anybody here who's going, you know, I would really prefer things not to work out well. Those plans that I have in my mind, I hope they, they crash on Monday morning. No, we all want things to work out well. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're in the church. I mean, those of us in the church, we would probably talk in terms of, I want a blessing. I want to be blessed. Um, but out there in the world, it's just, it's just happiness. I want things to work, to go my way. Um, and in fact, people are ready to do anything for that, aren't they? People are ready to do things that are long-term harmful and destructive in order to be happy in the moment. This is our human tendency, isn't it? Do whatever we can to have things work out for us, even if we're going to have to pay for it. And in this human tendency, we see Jacob as our biblical, biblically canonized poster child, 
right? You remember Jacob and what he did. He was bent on getting the blessing, on being blessed. He wanted things to go his way, and what happened? He destroyed his, his family, didn't he? His birth family divided. He was separated from them because in that moment, he thought, I'll get the blessing. I want things to work out. And they destroyed his family, but then there was a destruction in his own personal nuclear family because, I mean, he had a wife, and then he says, but I really want Rachel. Two wives. Bad idea. And he paid for it for the rest of his life. In fact, he was kind of open and honest about how tough things were after he made his family a battleground. And the question is, can we not trust God? Can't we trust God with the hand that we've been dealt? I mean, you think of it. We, God was behind the dealing. We say God is sovereign. And when things don't seem to be going well, can we say, okay, God, you knew this was going to happen. You've given me this difficult situation. And you say you love me. And so I trust you. I trust that you are doing your best through this. Or do we justify our sin because of a gracious outcome, an eventual gracious outcome? So I'll explain what I'm saying. Jacob, we could say, well, he had to marry Rachel. I mean, he had to have 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? But think about it. Rachel could have children, right? She had four. She could have had 12. Couldn't God have done it in that way? Or she had four sons already. Couldn't God have had them each have three children and that make up the 12? Like, this is God we're talking about. Does he lack creativity? Does he lack the ability to work things out? He could do it a hundred different ways. He's God. He could do it a thousand different ways. He could take that situation that we feel we're stuck in, that's not going well, and he could change it in a moment, and he has all these options before him. Why doesn't he? Because he knows what's best. Because he has a plan. He has a purpose for his children, and he's working it out perfectly even though it sometimes doesn't feel perfect and you know God is gracious to us along the way even as we kind of chafe and fight and don't understand and complain he, he understands well they're my children my imperfect children and they're learning they're learning Learning to lean, right? Remember the hymn, Learning to Lean, Learning to Lean on Jesus? He says, hey, I'm going to stick with them while they're learning. And that's what we kind of defined in this next segment of the story. Jacob is learning. And he's learning through testing, through trials, through challenges. He's learning that he can trust God. And God puts him in a situation that is very difficult. 
in order that he help Jacob grow, develop, learn, mature. Who's he put Jacob opposite of? A bigger swindler than him, right? Sometimes we complain about the situations we're in and we go, we should go, how does this reflect who I am and what God's doing in my life? Here Jacob is face to face with with Laban and Laban holds the winning hand. And so Jacob has no other recourse but to trust in God. And I really, as I'm using some of that terminology, it sort of sounds like I'm I'm in a saloon somewhere and there are these gamblers at a table, right? But that's basically what was going on here with Jacob and Laban. They could have been sitting across from each other in a saloon table with honky-tonk music playing in the background, dragging on cigarettes and drinking whiskey and, and you know, playing cards because that's, that's the exact situation they were in. And sometimes you and I find ourselves in that sort of situation where we're challenged by somebody and we know they're trying to take us. And the question is, what are we going to do? Are we going to trust God or are we going to say, I've got to get what I want here? I know what I'm talking about. I just bought a used car a little while ago. <laughs> it happens all the time. But what an opportunity for us to learn, to learn from God, to learn about God, to draw closer to God. And so today we're going to see Laban leans on superstition. Jacob looks to the supernatural and he learns to live by a superior truth. So let's turn to Genesis 30 if you're not there already. And let's start reading verses 25 to 30. And the question is, do we settle for super selfish superstition? And let's find out what that is. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you that I may go for you know the service that I've given to you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it to you. Jacob said to him, you yourselves know how I've served you, how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it's increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever you, I turn. But now when you shall, or sorry, but now when shall I provide for my own household also? There it is. There's the exchange. And we can understand Jacob's dissatisfaction at this point in the story. His dissatisfaction with his circumstances. Some of his circumstances are of his own making. We've already talked about that. But some of his circumstances is just where he finds himself. This is the family that he's sort of connected himself to, become a part of, he's married into. And the Lord is using this discontent that he has to move him along, to move him back 
to his home, to his country, to the country that God has given him, given his family, given the godly line. You see, God doesn't want him to live out his days under Laban's rule, and that's definitely where he is right now. You can see it in the language, what he says at the beginning. You know, give me my wives and my children and let me go. Well, wasn't he a married man? You know, it wasn't just like Laban was his boss. Laban had this plan from the beginning, right? How can I take care of my daughters and my inheritance? Laban owned him. That's what was going on here. Laban owned him, he controlled him, and every bit of profit that Jacob was making was going into Laban's coffers. So he held the winning hand. We know this is how Laban worked based on his, his character. We've seen it before, right from way back in the beginning when Abraham's servant went to find a wife from, for Isaac. And Laban was one of the people that ended up being talked to because Rebecca was his brother. And he was, yeah, eyes full of dollar signs. And so Laban is going to continue to manipulate, control, and bully in order to own Jacob, to get the profit for all that Jacob does. And when Jacob opens up this subject of his departure, what does Laban say? He admits and this is interesting, that by some sort of sorcery, divination, witchcraft, that's the word that is used there in the Hebrew. Some of the translations say divination. Some of your English translations say by experience. And the word is understood to be, it's like, I don't know, he was reading cards, he was tea leaves or something like that. There was something he was doing some kind of sorcery, and, and he was told, the reason you have what you have, the reason you're profiting is because of Jacob's God, Yahweh. Now, we could say that's interesting. Why on earth would God allow truth to be communicated through sorcery? God didn't like sorcery. God made it very clear in his word Sorcery is an abomination. That was the word he used. But you know, there were some times where God did communicate to people who were using sorcery. He does it again with Laban. You might remember he did it with Saul when Saul had a bit of a seance, call up Samuel, wanted to get some information, what's going to happen in the future. And something I noticed, when God does communicate to these people, through their sorcery. You know what he's telling them? One, one message in all those situations, you're in trouble. You're in the wrong. That's what he said to Saul. Saul was overwhelmed by the message because it's like, you're, you're in for it. You're done. You're going to die. And so this is what God communicated to Laban. Hey, you're not in control. This guy's in control. I'm in control. God made it clear. 
And so he says, hey, through my divination, I understand that the only reason the family farm is turning a profit now is because of you. So Laban, in his expert mind, says, I'm going to hang on to this guy. There's no way I'm going to let him go. You think about it. Why on earth has Laban's farm only been making a profit since Jacob showed up on the scene? Jacob's family had time in the region. We know. I mentioned it before. Been there for, for, for a long time. Laban was, was handed this profitable farm. Laban had sons who were working for him. He had that fire in his belly. He wanted to make money, right? Why on earth were things not working out for Laban? Because he believed a lie. His life was based on a lie. What was that lie? It's a lie that's natural to believe, normal to live, and no one will ever call you out on this lie. Do what makes you happy. That's the rule of Laban's life. In fact, that is the natural rule of everybody's life in this world, right? The natural rule. Not the supernatural rule. But it's do what makes you happy. It's been all along, hasn't it? I think back, you know, I was thinking of slogans in my mind, but these are like back when I was a child. Have it your way. Right? That's a fast food sort of slogan, isn't it? Was, anyways. Not as familiar with the ones today, but have it your way. Things like that. You deserve a break today. This entitlement is subtly preached to us, subtly lived out in this world. And sometimes, even for you and I as believers, we subtly accept this lie. Things should be working out for me. Things should go my way. And I should do everything I can to make sure I get what I want. And that's where Laban was at. And guess what? His farm was a flop. Things weren't working. They weren't making money. Because, you know, when you go by what you want naturally, naturally we're all kind of lazy, right? <laughs> naturally, we don't have to work for our money. We don't have to work for, for success. We want things handed to us. And that's where Laban was. Laban, he didn't work. He just thought, man, if I can make the right deal, if I can just chisel the right person, I got it made, made in the shade. That's what he was thinking. And that's why to this point in time, things weren't working out. And I was thinking about that this week as I was studying this story and studying, thinking about Laban's life. You see how superstition and this selfishness connect. You see, superstition, idolatry, even the most detailed religions, they're made up by man, aren't they? They're invented. In fact, you can go to Galatians 4, you look at Corinthians, and then Paul in his writing, he's talking about false gods, idolatry, and he says, really, you know 
There's only one God. All these other gods are false gods. They're invented gods. And guess what? If those gods are invented by you and I, who do those gods think like? They think like us. They're gods that are made in our image. They're gods that are going to work everything out for us. They're the gods of superstition. The gods of how can I make this work out? How can I improve my luck? Well, if I just please this God that I invented, I'm going to get what I want. It's incredible, eh? The connection between our selfishness, the way we think, and superstition and false religion. Rather than a God that made us in his image, we make gods in our image. And we see how poorly things work out. For even a guy like Laban, who had all the advantages, who seemed to be a pretty smart guy, but he was living according to this very natural lie to serve himself. Instead of believing the God who was there, he's making believe, making belief that he is God. Don't do it. Don't be deceived. Let's not get sucked in, even in subtle ways, and be wrapped up in a lifestyle. A lifestyle of seeking, self-seeking, seeking things for ourselves. And that's where Laban was. We know the man he was. And, and listen to what he says. You know, Jacob says, hey, I want to go. I'm going to go back to my country. going to take my wives with me. And, and Laban says to him, name your wages. Name your price. What do you want? Sounds good, doesn't it? But I think the way we should hear this Sort of like in that situation when you walk onto a car lot and the prices aren't on the cars, used cars, right? You walk onto the lot, there's no prices in the car, and the salesman comes out to you and he goes, well, what would you pay for it? <laughs> what? What are you laughing about? Isn't that a nice thing for him to say? What would you pay for it? Well, why is he asking that question? He's asking that question because he wants to know how dumb you are and how hard he's going to have to work to get what he wants out of that car. <laughs> he's the one who's supposed to know the prices. He's the one who's in the market. He's the one who's selling cars. Why doesn't he just say a fair price is this? This is what a fair price for this car is. And so Laban, you know the guy, who he is. You know his heart. He's going, okay. What am I going to have to do? Where are we at here with this guy? How am I going to get the best deal? And Jacob's response is open and honest. In fact, this is kind of an odd thing for two swindlers to be open. Even when you know the guy's cheating and you know he's cheating you, you know, when they're in that situation, you still kind of hide. Jacob doesn't do that. He says, hey, you know, and I know. 
the thing, since I've gotten here, things have gone very well. I owe you nothing. You owe me everything. I can imagine Laban being a little uncomfortable, like swindlers don't normally talk this openly to one another. But Jacob says to him, this is the way it is. Probably shocks Laban. And he says, hey, you owe me, but let's leave this in God's hands. That's what he says. Let's read this next section to see how Jacob lays things out and see how he is learning. He's growing. He's starting to trust that God will work things out in the best way. Let's read. Verse 31 says, Jacob said, he said, what shall, or no, sorry, Laban said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today. Remove from it every speckled spotted sheep, every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come and you look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted as stolen. And Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. As I said, what we see here is a step for Jacob. He said that his wages would be the lesser part of the flock. The flock, the part of the flock that was considered less valuable. We know the value that's placed on an animal that's pure and spotless. We, we see that in the sacrificial system reflected. And God says, you know, bring me the firstborn lamb, the one that is spotless without defect. The color is, is pure. And this is always the way it is for, well, usually the way it is for us as, as people. We want something that, that looks good, that looks perfect. And so Jacob, you know, it's hard to understand the way things are laid out here, the way things are translated into English. And I'm not even saying that, oh, I understand it perfectly. But what, J what Jacob is saying here is, hey, you give me the leftovers. You give me the part that, that people don't value as much. And Obviously, if this is what they're valuing, the pure and the, this is how they breed them. They want them to be pure. And so he says, give me the smaller part. Give me the less valuable part. This is what I will take. And more than even the language and what's said here, we know that Jacob was making a bad deal for himself because of Laban's response. <laughs> 
Laban goes, sold, it's a deal, I'll take it. When Jacob said, yeah, let's, let's separate them and I'm going to do this and that and you do this and that, we see Laban conniving. We see him looking for how he's going to work things out so they're best for him. He says, okay, and immediately he separates things. Wait a second. Why does he put all the spots speckled and streaked goats and sheep with his sons? Because they don't know how to take care of these animals, right? They're the ones who've been in control of the farm up until Jacob arrived on the scene, and things weren't going well. Probably this is a case of, you know, the apple not falling too far from the tree. They were guys who were probably living according to the same lie as their father Laban. They weren't interested in working, but they were interested in getting the best deal. <laughs> Laban knows that. So he says, okay, here's what's going to happen, and here's what happened. Here's what we read there. These sons become the ones who are in control of Jacob's animals, or the ones that are to be Jacob's animals. And Jacob is to be in charge of Laban's flock. Once again, a great deal. A great deal for Laban, it seems. Another thing that's interesting here is that Jacob says this deal is going to be based on my honesty, my integrity. There's going to be a check and a balance here to make sure that I am not cheating. And he says at the end of all this, if there are still speckled you know, and spotted, and, and I've got pure in this flock, those pure, they're going to go back to you. It's all going to work out in the end. And Laban goes, great. This is wonderful. This is great. This is a good deal. I get the best. Oh, for sure I'll get the best. He's still trusting his superstition. He doesn't understand the power of this God of Jacob. And Jacob is growing. He's growing to trust his God. And for the first time, he is making a deal based on his honesty and integrity because we know how his deals worked out before with his brother Esau, with his father Isaac, the blessing, the birthright, the deceit in order that he get the best deal. He wasn't willing to wait for God. But here he is. And so Jacob take care of Laban's flock and, Laban, or and Jacob's animals are taken care of by Laban's sons. Do we trust God? Do we trust God enough to hold on to the short end of the stick and to say, you know, God, I believe that if I'm honest, if I trust in you, even though there is somebody on the other side of this who's working really hard to do me in, I trust that you will take care of me. I trust that you love me enough. How are we going to learn to trust him better? How are we going to learn to, to relax 
in that love he, he has for us, only by going through situations like this, and only by making the right decisions in those situations, saying, God, God I'm going I'm to trust in you, I'm going to trust that you will work things out for me. And you know what? Things may not work out best for us economically. But spiritually, relationally with God, we'll come out the other side going, hey, but you know what? I acted in my honesty. I acted in my integrity. I trusted God and, and I'm closer. I know I'm closer to him. He's spoken to me and he's carried me and he's comforted me through the situation. Well, Jacob finds success in this, in this superior truth. And that's the question I ask us. Will we find success in this superior truth? Let's look at what happens next. And this is another one of these sections. It kind of goes back and forth and we're left going, well, what exactly is being said here? There's a clear underlying answer to that. This is what's being said that we see, but there are a lot of details that we seem to lose in this. But it says, Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees, peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He sent the sticks that he had peeled, set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred, when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs, and he set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black of the flock of Laban. And he put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks and the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, and donkeys. Okay. That's interesting. Little confusing. Not completely clear for us today what's taking place. And there are some people who would like to think that what Jacob was doing was some kind of a, a superstitious ritual. You know, back when they were originally translating this into English, it was at a time when the people who spoke English back then believed in this idea that something that a woman saw before she had a child affected the way that child would be born. But I think the thing that's clear in this is not that, not that there's some visual thing that transformed everything, but that Jacob was a master herdsman. He'd already proven that. There was no superstition or, or mystical miracles taking place he just knew how to care for flocks and since he came to Laban they'd been making money hand over fist the prophets had been coming in because he knew how to take care of a flock God blessed him as well God was involved in this process and that is something that is absolutely true 
absolutely laid out here. It was God's blessing. God was on his side. But what he was doing was implementing things. As I said, they're a little less mystical, less hocus pocus than we're thinking. Wisdom. I did a little bit of reading over this week, trying to, trying to look into this, and all of the commentators say, you know, it's not really clear. The way things are told, there's this back and forth. But, you know, we've got to put faith in these people that they knew what they were doing. The domestic breeds that we're dealing with today, who were they developed by? We didn't develop them today. I mean, we've changed them. But the domestic breeds that we're using today were developed by these ancient people who had no genetic laboratories, who were not monkeying around with the DNA of the animals. In fact, that's going on today, and a lot of times they're advertising, this is a, this is a heritage that we have, a heritage breed, not one that has been genetically modified. And people go, yeah, let's get back to the ones that haven't been genetically modified. Just these breeds that have been developed over years of people applying wisdom principles to how to develop these animals. Because what we're finding is, you know, we've got these animals that will now super produce. But man, shower in, shower out because they have no ability to fight diseases. There are all sorts of weaknesses. And so you think of it, you think these people weren't as dumb as we thought they were. They're, you know, it's evolutionary thinking to think these people are just next thing to cavemen. These people had intelligence. These people had wisdom. And so I think what we're seeing here is Jacob applying wisdom, herd health. And you think, what's that all about? The, the stripping of the bark and throwing it in the water? Do you know if you research this, you can go online, you can find uh, studies that have been done. I was reading one out of New Zealand that's talking about the health benefits of poplar in the water of sheep. <laughs> Interesting. I wonder who thought of that. Maybe somebody who was reading the Bible. Thought, Let's try this. And they're talking about how gestation, there's more success in, in gestation, in live births, and that sort of thing, when the animals have been given this nutrition that comes from between the bark and the stick of a poplar branch. Who'd have thunk it? These people way back here. And now some people are taking ancient truths and going, hey, I wonder if we should investigate here. So Jacob here is applying some basic principles that they knew 
or maybe something God revealed? Because if you read in chapter 31, there are obviously a lot of details that we don't get in the Bible, but we can see them in different places where there's a few more details given. And he's talking to his wives in the next chapter and says, you know, God revealed this to me in a dream. That this is what's going to play out here. And so here he is using superior knowledge, using truth. And then what we see is just as Laban's going, okay, we're going to take all the speckled streak and we're going to put them over there so that there will be no more produced from my flock which Jacob is taking care of. Three days distance between. And Jacob's going, okay. I'm going to make sure, selective breeding, right? I'm going to make sure that I get the stronger ones. The stronger ones are breeding, and when they come together for watering, it's going to happen. Once again, he's applying wisdom, applying truth. He's trusting in God, but he's applying truth and wisdom to the situation. And we think, Wow, isn't that interesting? How the blessing of God comes through basic wisdom. No, there was God. God was obviously caring for Jacob over and above. But what we see here, what we see here is him working hard and applying wisdom to the situation, to the work, the things that he was doing. Why doesn't that work today? Or does it? Why does it seem that we're losing wisdom, basic wisdom, that teaches us truth? Why is our world not listening to basic wisdom and to truth? Think of the difference, eh? I was doing some thinking, and I don't want this to just turn into some kind of a you know, hey, do this to get what you want sort of message. But let's think about wisdom. Let's think about the people back then. Let's think about why Joseph had this superior knowledge. They lived in a time where there were oral traditions. In missions, we talk about that. Oral traditions where people are passing along truth verbally. And people had to remember that truth. And back then, I imagine, closer to creation, they had sharper minds. Oral tradition was passed along. People were expected to learn things by experience and remember them. Because your life depends on this. You're not going to be able to Google it later on. And so they looked at applying intelligence and truth and knowledge to the situation. And they were responsible to do that on an ongoing basis. They had better memories. Memories that weren't dependent upon technology all the time. And if this is going to work, I'm the one who's responsible. I thought of that. The difference between... Where we are now and where they were then. 
where God's people were back then. You think of our memories. We all always complain about, oh, I just can't remember. But are we testing our memories? Are we doing things that keep our memory working? Are we trying to remember important things? What about our learning methods? Do we really believe that, that we should be applying truths to life or teaching truths in a way that they can be applied to life? Or are we just sort of throwing out facts and information and saying, remember this, remember this, remember this? Do our learning methods have to do with practical experience? There's another thing that we talk about in this day and age. It's called a generation gap. You know, when I was growing up, they always talked about the generation gap, how this, this developed, this doubting of elderly wisdom. And the young people grow up and they go, those old people, they don't understand anything. We know better. And it seems that technology is only added to that because uh, the older people are going, like I add myself into that group, are going, like, what does, how does this work? And the young people just think they're so sharp because, hey, when I look at a screen, it automatically makes sense, and I know you have to go there and go there. But what about applied wisdom? You know, we think we've done something if we watch a YouTube video about it. But have you really done something if you haven't held it in your hands? I remember when I was a, a younger pastor back in the 90s, I was sitting there listening to, listening to a group of pastors talk about older people who were, they just thought they were kind of crotchety in their, that can happen to some older people. I'm glad it doesn't happen here. But they can get, you know, be, be kind of irrita irritated. And the one young man, he was a youth pastor, he goes, oh, I know, I know why they're irritated. He says, it's because of all this new technology. And they find they just don't know anything anymore. <laughs> There's a problem. And you think, wait a second. Experiential wisdom is the only kind of wisdom there is. There's no experience. It's just information. It's just knowledge. And so we see the effects of, the, of sin on our, our world in the cycles and cultures and how it goes on, how, how we, we divide ourselves from, from applied truth or from applying truth, whether that be spiritual truth or animal husbandry. And we live in a world today <laughs> where we kind of washed our hands of truth completely. It doesn't make sense. And people feel like they can invent truth. <laughs> if enough of us say it's true, then it's true. I want to encourage you. We have a leg up on this world just because we believe in an almighty God who's given us absolute truth. But let's make sure we don't forget to apply 
that truth. Let's make sure we're listening to wisdom as it comes to us from God and from others who are godly, who've had the experience, who've lived the life. Because I see how it's sneaking into even our Christian culture, our church culture. Yeah, back in the day, the people who were really going ahead were the people who were spending time in prayer, studying the word, stepping back from the world, taking time with God and meditating on him. But that doesn't work anymore because anything we need to find out, even spiritually, we can Google. So we don't need to read the word. When we have a question, we just go to... No, we still don't know how to apply it unless we're in the process, the process of applying truth. And just to say one more thing, I think that is what we see here with Jacob. We, we have him set in contrast to this worldly, superstitious way of thinking that, you know, I can just get what I want. Entitlement. I should just get what I want. Entitlement. Don't we hear that word today? People feel they should be entitled to get what they want without having to learn how to do or work for. But with truth, we have to engage. We're not entitled. We have to engage with that truth. And what is that truth? Or should we say, who is that truth? You and I need to be challenged by that question. Who is that truth? Because a lot of times you and I have answers. But we haven't or are not applying them experientially to our lives. In relationship with God. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He came into this world. He gave his life so that we could have a relationship with him. Forgiven from our sins. Engaged, walking with him. And you know what? We would all say, I want that life, right? Back to the beginning. I want to be blessed. I want things to go well with me. And because we believe in the word, because we've read it, we've sat in church, we, we engage with other Christians, we know what that truth is. We're not there yet, though. Have we walked in the way? Are we continuing to walk in the way? I mean, we can look at Jacob and we can go, mm, man, that guy, rough around the edges. Even more than just the edges. But we see him beginning to engage with God and walk in truth. 
we have a lot more of that truth. We, we can go back, we can read the stories, and they can lay out. These are the truths that we are to be living by. The question is, are we living? Are we living by those truths? I heard a guy say a couple weeks ago, we all want the life, but are we willing to choose the lifestyle? It challenges our hearts. It should challenge our hearts. You think about it. I think about it. You know, you go through, you, you go through Bible college. You get a, a degree in theology. You studied the word of God. But are you engaging with that truth in your daily life? And it's not simply applying information. But it's that relationship with the one who is the truth. Am I living my life? Am I walking with Jesus Christ on a daily basis? Is it functional for you and I? And I'm challenged. I'm challenged. What about that, you and I? How are we going to apply this to our lives? What are the, what are the principles? How are we going to walk closer with the Lord? What are those basic truths that have been true for forever in terms of his word, in terms of, in terms of spending time meditating on his truth? and engaging with him in prayer, that we sort of go, well, yeah, but we've got all the right information now, so we don't need to do that anymore. Lord, help us. Help us to see what is being offered to us. Not just a way to win, not just a way to be blessed, but a way to come into deeper fellowship and to continue to deepen our fellowship the God of the universe, through his son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you. Thank you for making a way, making a way through your son and the cross, dying for our sins. But Lord, help us to not just choose that way, recognize that is the way, say that is the way, but Lord, help us to walk in that way. Help us to walk in fellowship with you. As we go into this next part of our service that is called communion. I ask that you'd help us to consider what that word really means. To be in communion with you. Lord, we're thankful thankful for all that you've offered to us. I pray that we would give you now and in our lives a proper response. Help us to do that. Help us to apply this wisdom to our lives and help us to honor you as you deserve to be honored.